Welcome back to the Peace and Justice Network podcast, Peace Lab. I am here with Jason Boone, and it's good to see you today, Jason. We're back again. It's beautiful here in Raleigh, even though we're both indoors. We should probably do it. Maybe outside would be better for the next one before it gets too hot. But yeah, good to be here. Good to see you. And I'm excited for a conversation I've been looking forward to today. Yeah, we have with us today... Brianna and Benjamin Isaac Krauss, and they are here to tell us about the Poor People's Campaign. That has made a lot of national news recently. There's been a couple different arrests, and I think related to that campaign, and just excited to hear about the work that's been going on and for other Mennonite folks to learn a little bit about how they can be more involved. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, first of all, I got to give a shout out to our friend Jonathan Brenneman, because, yeah, we saw the Poor People campaign going on, and I said, man, maybe Jonathan knows someone who's involved, and sure enough, he did, and he emailed us back real quick, and we got in touch with Benjamin and Rihanna, and glad to be talking to them, and, and maybe just, uh, we'll just kind of jump in with both feet here, and give both Benjamin and Rihanna a chance to introduce themselves to our audience here, and I, I don't know uh, who would like to do that first, but please, we want to give you the floor, and just maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. All right, hi, I'm Rihanna Isaac Kraus. I am a uh, AMBS student at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Elkhart, Indiana. I'm studying Christian formation, and I am Canadian and American and come from the Mennonite Brethren background. Yeah, just really excited about how environmental sustainability and spiritual sustainability interact, and that's me. And my name is Benjamin Isaac Krauss. Uh, I am a Mennonite originally from Germany, and I came to AMBS to continue my theological studies in the Mennonite context, and I'm interested in how churches can be parts of larger movements, not to bring about the kingdom of God, but to um, proclaim it in this world um, and to stand where the Spirit is leading. Important side note, this is a Mennonite World Conference love story, and so (laughs) at another point, we can have you back to hear about the matchmaking efforts of global Anabaptism. So start off by just hearing from you a little bit about what is the Poor People's Campaign, and how did you all get involved? The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is the full uh, name, and the Poor People's Campaign was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's last campaign that was kicked off in 1967, really started in 68. It was really his idea, together with a lot of other people, that the civil rights movement had made a lot of gains, and people could sit at the lunch counter now, but they couldn't afford a hamburger. And so really seeing that poverty is an underlying issue that keeps many people in this country from having their dignity and the the good life that uh, they could have in the richest country in the world. The idea was that poverty also is such a big problem that it can't just be African Americans dealing with it. It it affects way more people. It affects white people. It affects Latino people. And in fact, basically everyone, you need a lot of people to actually make those changes. And so It was a multiracial, multi-faith campaign back then in 68. And since King then got assassinated before it could really kick off, there were a lot of problems with the campaign. They still carried through. But the idea is that 50 years from since then, we still have a lot of the same problems. Then some things have actually gotten worse. Um, So voting rights, for example, 
uh, are worse today than they were in 68, because in 65, the Voting Rights Act has just passed. Since then, there have been a lot of legislation to repeal a lot of the good things that passed in that. So the campaign is an effort from many grassroots organizations uh, led by the Cairo Center in New York at Union Seminary and by Repairs of the Breach, which is in North Carolina, Reverend William Barber's organization, to build statewide coalitions to address these issues and to do so in a national concerted way because we share a lot of the problems but the decisions are often made at the state level. And the other thing is to bring all these people together to unite the poor and unite people who care about these things. So we got involved through seminary. They had a call out for faith leaders as a peace church. This is a big part of what I believe we need to be doing. And so that's where we started getting involved. For me personally, realizing that the Mennonite church has not en masse participated in the civil rights movement. Uh, I know Vincent Harding was Mennonite and tried to galvanize us to participate and was frustrated and ended up leaving the Mennonite church because there wasn't a response. And so as Mennonites, we need to show up when peace is being called for. I've actually been pretty impressed in Indiana how many Mennonites have shown up and Mennonite pastors speaking as a part of the movement. I got a question about strategy. This is very interesting to me. So you say we're focusing on state government, essentially, for the most part. And we're in this time where where everyone's so focused on national and so focused on the executive branch or whatever. And you don't know, is is that the best way to to put your energy? And we have a lot of folks who are in some way or another involved with with some form of resistance to to what's going on on the national level. Um, But the strategy here is, is focused on states. Can you talk a little bit more about how that evolved or like why was that, why was that the strategic best bet? I think it evolved from study and it evolved from looking at what are the problems. And if we take our cue from King and we say in Beyond Vietnam, he said the, the triple evils of extreme materialism, by which he meant poverty, militarism and racism are bound together. And if you don't attack all of them at the same time, you can't win. So we're taking our cue from that and we're adding ecological devastation because we realize more and more that that's really a game changer. And then you look, where are the laws passed that uh, hurt poor people? How does it work that we have this low minimum wage and that even a municipality can't just pass a higher minimum wage? That's actually at the state level. It doesn't happen at the federal level. Or where are a lot of the laws about immigration status happening, that's at the state level. Where does a lot of the ecological laws, the um, lack of environmental protection happen? That's at the state level again. Systemic racism. Systemic racism, voter suppression laws, those kind of things often end up actually happening at the state level. It doesn't mean that it's not necessarily a nationally concerted effort because there's think tanks that blueprint legislation that then just get adapted in these states it means that the decisions are made at the state level. And even if there was somebody else in the White House, that wouldn't necessarily change anything. So we are saying, A, our problems are often at the state level, but also in order to change something, you need to bring people together in a lasting effort. They need to know each other and they need to trust each other. And so that also is easier in a way to happen at a state level, right? It's a, it's a smaller subsystem, And often these people don't know each other. So we've been 
working here in Indiana and, and we really came late on board and we're doing a particular thing. So we're not doing a lot of the organizing. It's really interesting that there actually, you think, oh, it's the Midwest. There's, there can't be a lot going on. There's lots going on. It's just that it's really isolated and that everyone's working on their own issue, even though they have some awareness of how things are connected. And I think the Poor People's Campaign is in a way also this massive effort at educating ourselves to connect these dots and understand that it's the same politicians who hurt you that hurt me. It's not as in like we're trying to endorse one party or something. It's we're saying nobody's talking about poverty, about systemic racism, about uh, the war economy and the ecological devastation. And then the fifth piece that we forgot to mention is the moral narrative that kind of allows for these things to happen. So what we mean by that is like when you bring up poor people, people say, well, they just don't work hard enough. We blame the poor, we blame immigrants, we blame people for their suffering, which they actually didn't cause. But these are powerful myths that we need to dispel. And that's part of what the movement is about and part of what the study is about. So Barbara often says, there's nothing worse than being loud and wrong. And so we're really starting this with study. The Poor People's Campaign, the National Call for More Revival, put out this um, audit assessing the soul of America 50 years after or something like that. The strategy is at the state level. There's 39 different states who have actions every Monday. But then at the end of these 40 days of action, which started on Mother's Day, at the end of these 40 days will culminate in Washington, D.C. and also move to the federal level. And so it's, it's kind of a both-and approach. And then after that, we will see where the campaign will go. It's not like it'll be over at this point. This is a, a long journey in front of us. So right now, probably why we're doing this interview is because the Poor People's Campaign, in a way, like exploded on the national media landscape, partly because Reverend William Barber and Liz Pia Harris, who's the other coach chair, they did a lot of speaking ar- across the country last year. But then really it started this year when people started getting arrested all over the country at the same time, uh, talking about the same things, right? By now, there's been over a thousand arrests in these 40 days. We're in the fourth week right now. So there's two weeks left. And that, in a way, managed to break through this media cycle of the last tweet or the last comment from some celebrity with this moral message. And that's really the purpose of these 40 days is to say, we're here, we're a movement, we're uh, unified enough to talk about these things that nobody likes talking about. That's one tactic within a larger strategy. And we'll keep going because we know that the powers we're up against are, are too large to make demands. I think it's really important that we don't pretend like we have the power that we need. That's one of the things that we know we need more people. Um, how can we plug them in? And right now, for these 40 days, it's we're doing a lot of civil disobedience and a lot of rallies and we're asking people to come out for that because we know it's a transformative experience to be with other people who agree with you and who who suddenly you're like wow we've had people there speakers even who agreed to speak and were touched that suddenly they realize i'm not alone in feeling like this so that's also a part of why we're doing this but then we'll move on and do voter registration afterwards because we think that it's really important that people just vote their conscience and we'll continue to do these educating and mobilizing efforts uh, to bring people together. 
Yeah, I'd love for you all to talk a little bit more about the discernment that you went through about, because Rihanna, you were arrested as part of a recent act of civil disobedience and uh, how you did that discernment for yourself. And also, I know that you all have done prison support since then. And you could talk to us a little bit about both of those things. For me, I was really convicted over Easter, hearing the Easter story of Good Friday story of Jesus being arrested and calmly going along with it, even when it wasn't his fault, even it was a like a false arrest. I sat with that for a number of weeks of how can I say I'm a follower of Jesus when I don't actually follow what Jesus did? Because I've never done anything like this before. Like I'm kind of a like youth ministry, youth pastor kind of person. Activism wasn't really um, an identity that I, I held for myself, but this Easter, I was thinking a lot about that and saying, actually, like, I need to, I need to walk where Jesus walked. And so how do I kind of keep that non-anxious presence and like not respond when I'm questioned? Like some of these type of things that, um, that we see Jesus doing and we hear this story every year. And then I don't actually see my fellow Christians doing what Jesus um, did. So that, that was like the turning point for me in the decision to participate in being arrested and risking arrest, and then that actually happened. And that was honestly a really powerful experience for me because, yeah, I'd never been that, like, dehumanized before in my life. I'm a middle-class, Mennonite-educated woman, and I've had a lot of privileges. And so being in the jail processing center, I was in there for 18 hours total when all said and done, and some of those conversations with the women around me was very transformative. I was expecting the transformative experience to be at the rally. Actually, it was sitting in this very dirty, disgusting, smelly cell with no cell phones and no distractions and listening to the stories of the women around me and what brought them to that place. And shocking stories like one woman called the police on her ex-boyfriend who was trying to get into her house. And the police arrested her instead of her ex-boyfriend. Another woman in there said it very clearly. Why does it feel like all the criminals are out there and not in here? And naming some of the systemic racism that was in this, that space. There was another minister that got arrested with us. And when she said what her job was, she's like, I'm a pastor. One woman started crying and another woman said, hey, can you pray for me? And so we actually were able to create a very sacred space in there. Joanna uh, is an 81-year-old Mennonite woman from Indianapolis. She's done a lot of work with CPT, Christian Peacemaker Teams, in the past. And she was in there also. And it changed the experience to have the group of us in there and actually like listening out these stories. Yeah, it was powerful. What did they end up arresting you for? Like, was it something like failure to disperse or like some other sort of administrative thing? Or Yeah, it, was a, it ended up being a class B misdemeanor for blocking traffic. In many other states, they didn't actually arrest people for that. But Indiana is quite aggressive <laughs> with their police force. So that's what ended up happening. So my court case will likely go on for a number of months. It's going to be a... a long and confusing process that I haven't had to deal with before. So very new, but very humbling to realize how many obstacles are put in place 
to make it harder to succeed. Even like they told us to go to one room and if we didn't show up at that room at that time, then like they put a warrant out for our names, but then it like they weren't in that room. No one was in that room and it was actually six floors under in the basement that we were supposed to go to, but on the paperwork they gave us it was go to this room. And if we hadn't showed up at the right time, like that's huge. And so I don't know. I'm I'm realizing how in the States, they say that, like, you're innocent until proven guilty, but at no point during the 18 hours they kept me in there did I feel like they were treating me like I was innocent. I, I was going to ask a follow-up. So this is interesting. So, Rihanna, you, yeah, you, you've got your experience in jail now. And, Benjamin, was it a decision that you made, Rihanna, to say, you know what, I'm not going to move when I'm told to move, and, this is gonna be, and if this happens, it happens. And that was a decision that you didn't want to make, Benjamin. I guess what I'm trying to get to is, the campaign is is got such good goals, and I think a lot of people want to be a part of it. But you know, we're so quick to sort of compartmentalize things and say, "Oh, well, if I want to get involved in this campaign, I have to get arrested." But that's not the case, is it? I mean, talk about sort of some of the the breadth of of how people can be engaged in this. You know, and if they feel called to the level that Rihanna did, or if not, what what are some of the other ways? There's feeling called, and then there's real risk factors, right? So I'm a, I'm here on F1 student visa. That's, as a German citizen. A, since I'm a German citizen, right? So the visa visa is an uh, invitation to be here, and it's under the condition that I uh, don't break any laws, right? So um, even though these are misdemeanors and they're not really, like, serious for anyone who's a citizen, it's a big deal uh, if you have not a permanent status like myself. It's a and, risk you're not willing to take. Yeah, I mean, sure, yeah. And you don't, it doesn't always end up that you get deported, but it's just not something I, I want to risk. I think the great thing about the movement is that they need, we need everyone, right? Somebody suggested to me when I was, I was really wrestling with this because I felt, did feel like I wanted to participate in the civil disobedience because I basically had that same idea that you were referring to, Jason, that like, well, if you're going to go all the way or something, which is really a weird idea now that I think about it, somewhat of a patriarchal idea. So somebody suggested to me, hey, we need somebody to organize the jail support, which really has like two parts. There's a, a part that's more legal where I take everyone's info. So we only allow people who go through our trainings to participate in civil disobedience uh, and they sign a covenant of nonviolence. So I have all that paperwork. If people do end up getting arrested, I try to work with the police to say, hey, I'm here to make your job easier. Can we do something that, that these people come out faster? But also to just make sure people don't get lost in the system. And so actually, just yesterday, somebody did get lost in the system. We had one uh, man, we were six, six people got arrested and, and five got out. Then we were waiting for one person. And John, John Graber is a 60, mid-60s-year-old man from Fellowship of Hope Mennonite Church in Elkhart, Indiana. And his paperwork was stapled to the back of paperwork of someone else. And so he was in there for 29 hours until yeah. he got out. They lost him. Lost him. And so part of the jail support work is to go in and keep complaining, kind of like the widow in the story and say, you need to get these people out of there. And then the other part is to have people be there when people get out, right? And so we're now, we're a larger team of people and try to organize both those things. And it's really important. And then afterwards, 
because this is an, an impactful experience for people. People process things differently. Some people don't want to talk about it, um, but a lot of people want to talk about it, need to talk about it, and it's been their first time that they do something like this. And all those kind of uh, things are fall under jail support. There's a significant need for pastoral care because it's such a dehumanizing and traumatizing experience for many people. And so we've noticed that people with ministry experience are very good at jail support. And we have a great need to support and be with those who are risking arrest. Yeah. I don't know if it's, if, is it more Orwellian or Kafka-esque that like the system can just lose you? So the thing I've been thinking about a lot is I'm working on a master's degree and I don't have a job right now. I, we took the summer and said, we're just going to do poor people's campaign work. And it took me really long to figure out where people are. Nobody wanted to talk to me. Uh, like the first action physically in the city, the police told us, well, they're going here. That place was actually closed. They had moved that place to somewhere else. And it was just... As somebody with a lot of privilege, you only realize when you're in that situation. And then you're like, wait a minute, if I had kids and had a job, how would I ever figure this out? And we, so our group of jail support people, we were like physically outside the jail waiting on people to come out. And there were lots of other people come out and we had water and stuff. And so often we try. Wet wipes are so important to clean off after you've been in there. So we like end up talking with a lot of the other people who get out of jail or giving them like having them have a phone call or those kinds of things as lots of people in our movement who had maybe previous jail experience say like, this is not normal. Like nobody has a jail support group when they usually get out of jail. Those are all things to kind of hold in tension. We keep learning about how these systems impact people and especially poor people. Uh, and people of color. I'm curious about how your ideas about peace and justice have changed um, through being a part of this campaign and uh, particularly the experience of seeing people go through the jail and per- particularly political activism around um, trying to shape a moral voice within our political system, which is typically, as you said, Vincent Harding tried to encourage people to be more involved in Mennonites to be more involved in that way and definitely felt resistance to that. And um, so I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about how you feel like uh, peace and justice has been transformed for you or changed through your involvement. After reflecting on my experience, I wrote up a little, a reflection and I'll read a couple sentences here. I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been interested in these ideas for a while, but I think this is how my concept of Jesus has shifted a little bit. I follow a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew named Jesus, the Jesus who preached, blessed are the poor, and who was poor himself, the Jesus who told the parable about the Good Samaritan, defying the racism of the time, the Jesus who pointed people to flowers and birds to learn about God's abundant economy of grace, the Jesus who died on a cross, executed by a conspiracy between the religious elite and the mightiest military power of the ancient world, the Jesus who risks arrest for his witness. I'm trying to follow Jesus in naming the evils of poverty, racism, environmental degradation, and the military-industrial complex. And I saw Jesus more in the eyes of the women in there than I had ever expected. And for me, it was like peace and justice 
are so much more raw and tangible when not thought about theoretically, but actually lived. And how gritty and smelly peace and justice can be. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the image of the nurse in there who spends hours giving people TV shots and giving pregnancy tests to every woman who goes through. The kindness that she gave when we were, like, it smelled in there. There are a number of people that were not in 100% health. And we made comments and she ended up spraying some air freshener from her room into the cell. And the incredible gratefulness I had for her in that moment. Um, she works there every day. She doesn't have enough air freshener, <laughs> right? Like, so like, I'm noticing the gratitude in that moment for that, but also realizing that this, this system can't be changed by a, like, a spray of air freshener. I had this like, dream of like, if I currently was a youth pastor, I would grab all of my youth and do a service trip of going into the jail and cleaning that place. Because that would have made all, like, if you're going to do a short-term missions trip, go to your local jail. Honestly, that was what I was thinking th- throughout that experience of what does peace and just look, justice look like in an average Mennonite church is like, go, go visit your local jail. <laughs> yeah, th- that's interesting. This is something I'd, I'd love to hear you just sort of freestyle on. And you too, Melissa, just because uh, I think this is an important thing for, as part of our peace witness. And a, a question we often ask on this show is like, what does it mean to be a peace church in the 21st century? Like A lot of our history, Mennonite peace history, has been focused more on militarism and sort of not getting involved with that. But, you know, there is a, a link that maybe it's not obvious, but it's it's so there between militarism and, and our just unending quest uh, to make war in other places and how it affects our domestic situation. I don't know. It, it seems like you've been very thoughtful about a lot of aspects of this campaign, but could you maybe help our listeners uh, make that connection between militarism and, and what goes on at home? One of the things that was highlighted last week when we were talking about militarism was that because of the lack of gun laws, there are lots of folks who have assault rifles in their homes and on their beings. And because of that, the police need to keep this world safe. And so they need to get higher weapons and more assault rifles and more military grade weapons because the locals have more military grade weapons. And so it becomes this kind of arms race between people and the police because everyone needs to feel safe, right? (laughs) As the police are becoming more military equipped, they also need military training in order to interact with the local population that has, in my perspective, (laughs) um, out of proportion um, guns to their, their, their needs for hunting. Yeah, and so for me, that escalation became really, really, really clear. There's also a clear recycling that's happening between military weapons that filter into police departments, uh, and there's grants for that, and suddenly there's money for that, but there's not money on like training police on de-escalation, on anti-bias trainings, and those kind of things. So I know we had one more question for you all. Curious about your hopes for the outcome of the campaign. When you think about what the world will look like after... Poor People's Campaign, what's, what's the kind of world that you see? For me, the moral narrative is something that I'm really passionate about, is what does this shift in a moral narrative look like? What does a moral revival look like in this country? I see that happening. It's happened in the past with the Occupy movement. One of the big outcomes of that movement is now the 1% and the 99% is 
language that people know. And so I would say that's a shift in the moral narrative, that the us and them isn't along divisions of, of race or of other groups, but it's, it's of like, we are the 99%, right? That's a moral narrative shift that I've seen happen. And so my dream is that this campaign can participate in a moral narrative shift that actually names poverty as evil, that names systemic racism as evil, that names the military economy as evil. Even if people are pro-military, the argument that we don't take care of our veterans, we just keep making more veterans. Everyone I go by nods and they say, yeah. Like the, the system doesn't work for anyone. And I'm a pacifist. So like, of course I'm going to say the military economy is evil. But as soon as you actually start talking about how the leftovers of the military economy of like the veterans that are homeless and not taken care of, that is clearly seen by the people around me as evil also, even if they aren't pacifist. And ecological devastation is evil. Poisoning drinking water, that is evil. So I think that is... That is kind of what I'm hoping for is this moral narrative shift of saying we can engage with these collective sins. And specifically me as a Christian, as a Mennonite, how do I work towards the reconciliation? How do I work towards um, not continuing to sin? How do we repent? How do we change our ways and turn around and live into something that God wants us to live into? That's my hope and outcome of the campaign. My question is always, so what do we mean by like the end of the campaign, right? Um, but uh, so the, we, yeah. Um, but seriously, I would agree with with what Rihanna said about the moral narrative shift is something that we really need. And the other thing is to keep building relationships across these different groups that already exist and have a kind of platform that people can go onto. So I'm I'm studying peace studies. John Paul Lederach talks about for peace you need a a critical yeast. Um, so it doesn't have to be everyone, but it needs to be a, a group that has enough togetherness and unlikely relationships um, and is in a way large enough to make changes, to, to take the, turn the dough into, into bread. And you also need a process structure. So a river is a process structure. It's always moving, but it has a, a certain form and cohesiveness. And I think... So when people talk about changing the language, I hear already how people are saying, oh, that's not doing anything. It's also, we're also building friendships across people who don't know each other and who have, through history and through the system, really good reasons to distrust each other. And we're working a lot internally on learning how to trust each other. That's very important. And I think that's what we will continue to see the effects of. And when you look at history, you see that the people who participated in the freedom schools later become the leaders. So there's a lot of groundwork that we're laying. And I think we never know whether this movement is the one that makes the decisive shift or whether we're laying groundwork for the next level. People have been working on civil rights a really long time. Abolitionist movement didn't just happen in a generation. And they didn't know whether they were the ones to make the shift or not. You can read Frederick Douglass, how disappointed he was just before the Emancipation of a Proclamation actually passed uh, and thought it would never happen. So I think that's the kind of hope that I have. Um, and that's where also faith comes in to know that it's not up to us to make those shifts. We're just participating. 
I think there's there's another narrative that uh, the Mennonite Church in the states, anyways, is is in decline. And in some metrics, maybe it is. But I, I think uh, you've just disproven that in a way. I mean, if there, there's faithfulness here, moving people to go out and and following Jesus's steps, then we're in a lot better shape than uh, than maybe we want to recognize the time. So, hey, uh, Benjamin and Rihanna, thanks so much for for stopping by Peace Lab. But even more than that, thanks for for the great work you're doing. Keep it up. We hope more people join you in Indiana and and all across where the movement is spreading. And uh, thanks for listening today, folks. You can find Peace Lab on iTunes and Stitcher and anywhere else you find podcasts. And uh, a special request this time, pass this one on. We, we think this is, this is a good message to hear. Maybe think through some of the issues that, uh, that you see in the headlines uh, and hear some good, good personal insight on it. So spread this one around and, and let's get this message out there. Yeah, And you can sign on to the campaign at poorpeoplescampaign.org. And you can pray for us and pray against these four evils. I think that's, that's a fantastic word. Until next time, I'm Jason Boone and Melissa for, uh, for Melissa for Bixler, and we will see you again on Peace Lab. Peace Lab.